0: Good morning, everybody. How many of you spent the week at the fair? right. Anyone in here not go to the fair at all? My people. All right. (laughs) Yes. Those of us who have not attended the fair stand in judgment of those of you that do. (laughs) We pray for your arteries. We pray for... (laughs) Psalm 16, if you have your Bibles, open up to Psalm 16 today. We'll be speaking about the idea of being sheltered in God. Sheltered in God. It's so good to sing songs like we just sang, He Will Hold Me Fast. And I think as we begin to address this topic of being sheltered in God, uh, it's an appropriate topic in the day and age and times in which we find ourselves. Uh, we find ourselves in a time where shelter is what we need, and we need a shelter that is not easily undone. And so Psalm 16 speaks to that reality for us. And as we begin, let me just begin with this idea of someone who is, who we would call sheltered. Now when we use the word sheltered in regards to someone's character or someone's makeup, it's not typically a good thing, is it? For to say that so-and-so is a sheltered individual means that they're naive, that maybe they've been cared for to the point that they don't know how to care for themselves. Maybe they still live in someone's basement and don't know how to turn the uh, washing machine on. Maybe you've got all these images in your head of someone who might be sheltered. Our psalm today, though, takes a different spin or a different take on that word sheltered. And the psalmist, in this case it's David, wants us to understand and he's trying to create a picture that draws us into the shelter of God, that being sheltered by God is exactly the place that we should pursue and should be in. Psalm 16 is a psalm of celebration And so when we read it, it should build within you. Like it should build a sense of anticipation as we work our way through it until the culmination at the end of the psalm, which we will get to, and you'll see why that's the culmination. And my prayer for us, even as David wrote this and his intent was that the people who read it and even today as we engage it, my prayer is that we would leave this time with an understanding of why we should live under the shelter of the Almighty God. Why we should be a sheltered people. So let's read Psalm 16 together now and then we'll get into the text. Psalm 16, verse one. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply and their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Do you feel it? You feel the buildup in this psalm? You feel the, the movement towards celebration as David writes this? And what he is saying to us is that there is no better way to live than in the shelter of God. That's not a, a gigantic or new statement, but it really is. And we're going to unfold why. There is no better way to live than in the shelter of God. And so if the best life is lived in the shelter of God, then King David tells us it must begin with God. And so notice that Psalm 16, he begins with this point that to be sheltered under God means that you commit to him as your king. You commit to him as your king. Look at verses 1 and 2. David begins his argument that living in the shelter of God is the only way to live by making an obvious yet somewhat shocking statement when David says, You are my Lord. Lord can also be translated as king, so it's an appropriate way to read this as David saying, You are my king. Even though by all appearances David was king, David sat on the throne. People worshipped David. People bowed before his throne. People waited for his words. David says, no, the one who truly sits on the throne is Yahweh, Lord. You'll notice in your text there, verse two, I say to the Lord, Lord is all caps, that's Hebrew for Yahweh, and that signifies the God of the covenants, the God of the fathers of Abraham and Isaac and so on, the God that delivered Israel. And so Yahweh, he is the king. And the question I ask myself as I read that this week is, why does David feel the need to start the psalm off with a statement of surrender to the kingship of God? Well, it's the same reason that we need to start with a surrender to the kingship of God. Because our hearts are fickle. And if we do not intentionally vocalize God's reign upon the throne, if we do not intentionally speak the reality that he is king, and that at the starting point his kingship is what gives us life then you will do what I do and you will attempt to sit on that throne yourself. And you will attempt to live under your own shelter rather than God's. And so the reality for David is is he begins by stating that God is king. Because in stating that Statement, it isn't just reading the weather report or just stating a fact. By stating that God is king, it is actually an act of worship that David is engaging in. Because if God is king, no one else can be. And so David is praising God for his position of authority, his rightful position of authority, and he is surrendering and submitting himself in the proper position before him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul links into this idea of intentionally stating your position before God by saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse five, that the Christian should take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. Basically saying that in the battle for kingship in one's life you must intentionally be active in worshiping, verbalizing and stating unapologetically that God is your king and he sits on the throne of your life and that you bow before him. And here's the beautiful reality of that proactive statement that we make that God is king. As you state that And you actively pronounce that reality. And as you dwell on the kingship of God, it reflects a heart that is surrendered and surrendering. And that heart which is surrendered and surrendering is a heart that finally understands what David says in verse 2 at the end of it, that there is no good apart from God. The more that you dwell on the kingship of God and a proper positioning of yourself underneath him, the more the heart unfolds to the reality of his ultimate goodness, that there is no good outside of him. And so the mouth proclaims what the heart unfolds to. Oh God, I have no good apart from you. That's the starting point of living in the shelter of God. And as you live in that proper position with God as your king and recognizing that all good things come from him, then the pleasures of your heart reflect his reign. Look at how the psalmist progresses next. He says that the saints in the land, they are the ones that are excellent and he delights in them. And so as the heart of, that God has given you unfolds before him and you serve Him as king and reflect His goodness, then you delight in what God delights in. And verse 3 tells us what God delights in. Well, God delights in the people who delight Him. Zephaniah 3.17, write this down. This is a good verse to write down. Hang in your house. Write it on your wife's forehead so you can see it. Etc. All those things. This is a great reminder Zephaniah 3.17, some of you know this. I can see it in your eyes. The Lord God is in your midst. He's a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. God delights in you as you delight in him. In Psalm 147.11, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him, in those whose hope is in his steadfast love. He delights in you. And so as God delights in his children, So the one who is living in the shelter of the Almighty God delights in the excellent ones, those who delight in God. It's pretty amazing language that David's using here. He describes the ones who delight in God as excellent. And so I look around this room this morning, and I see you all here on a Sunday morning, singing praise to God, hearing the Word of God taught, I see you delighting in God. And so guess what I call you? Excellent ones. The Hebrew word for excellent there is actually can be translated also as majestic. And it's used in this idea of majesty regarding things that your heart can't express. The heart cannot put into clean words. And so David's saying, when I see the ones who delight in God, my heart is overwhelmed to the point that I can't really put into words what I am seeing. It's a pretty weighty principle here. Look around at your brothers and sisters. They are the excellent ones. You are to delight in them. And why do we want to delight in one another? Because we want to give God glory. And God is most glorified by those who Surrender to him and the more people that surrender to him more glory he receives and so look around this room today and see all these people glorifying God and praise God that he has redeemed every single one of us you are the excellent ones because God has made you such and so we praise God as we look at one another now this is a difficult thing to do isn't it To call one another an excellent one and to to delight in one another is a difficult thing to do in our day and age and every day and age because all of us have different thoughts on different issues in life and now we know exactly where everyone stands on everything. We think differently about issues in life and so we are divided in issues of life. And rather than seeing one another as excellent ones who delight in the glory of God, we instead see one another based on what you posted this week on Facebook. And so you come in on a Sunday and you're like, oh, that person posted this on Facebook. I can't be near them. Brothers and sisters, for us to define one another not as how God defines one another, but rather by what they put on Facebook is ridiculous. And frankly, is mocking the glory of God. And so as we sit in this room today, the reality is that many of us need to repent of the way in which we look at one another, our brothers and sisters. We need to repent because we are not giving God glory by looking at his glorious children and calling them excellent. So I challenge us today to take to heart Romans chapter 15. Write this one down too as well. Look at it. This is maybe not so good to write on your wife's forehead. Romans 15, verses 5 through 7, but it is a reminder, a strong reminder of why unity among the brethren is so important. Paul says, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. And here's why, here, if you hear, hear me now, so that together you may with one voice glorify God the Father. So, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. So, brothers and sisters, as you surrender to the kingship and the goodness of God, may we delight in those that God delights in. Secondly, if you look at the scriptures, you see in verse 4 that not only do we delight in what God delights in, we despise in what God despises. We despise anything that mocks God's reign and imitates his goodness. Look at verse 4 with me. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. If God is king, no one, nothing else is. Therefore, David takes an active posture to ensure that all that he engages in are not reflective of the reign of another, nor would he even utter the names of another, because why would he? God is is his king. Why would he utter the name of another? God is his ultimate treasure. Why would he say something or someone else is his treasure? He won't even say their names. Oh that we would hold the glory of God in such esteem that we lived with such intensity not to follow lesser things. Some of you are saying, well Dan, we don't worship at the feet of Baal. You're right. We don't drink at the altar of Dagon. You're right. But I would say we do worship at the feet of culture. And we do drink at the altar altar of our society, which promises to satiate our thirst. We do these things. We do pursue lesser things. And so to live in the shelter of God is to despise those things that mock God's reign because he is king and he is the source of all goodness. David is laying the foundational truth. There is no better way to live than in the shelter of God because he is king and he is good. And so that means that we call him king and we call him good. But then it also means this. It means that we are content in his provision for us. If you look at your text here beginning in verse five, we see David then begin to address this idea of contentment in God's provision. Verse 5, the Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. And David really lists four things here that he is content in. And so we're going to look at these four points of contentment that David addresses. First and foremost, he says God is his chosen portion in his cup. Basically, this is festive language. This is meal language. This is a party language. And David's saying, above all other offerings at this celebration, I choose God. He is the chosen portion, in the smorgasbord of ideals that promise to satisfy. There is only one who deeply satisfies. He is the chosen portion in the chosen cup. Why would you choose a lesser thing? God is your rich meal and your celebratory cup. The picture here, choice portion, chosen portion, is that of the cut of meat that is the best. Some of you love a good steak. Yeah, the steak that you love is nothing compared to the glory and the goodness of God. He is a chosen portion. And so as we partake in him, it means that there's ultimate satisfaction and all else is exposed as cheap and wanting imitations. Peter rarely said the right things in the New Testament, didn't he? Some of you identify with Peter. Um, The way he speaks and spoke is the way that you speak and. And sometimes you have foot and mouth syndrome just like Peter did. Peter rarely said things that were like, "Oh man, yeah, good job." But in John 6:68, 6, Peter finally said something. And Jesus was probably as amazed as we are as we read it. In John 6:68, 6, Peter identified this principle when he looked at Jesus and he said, "Where else do we go? You alone have the words of life." God is our chosen portion in our cup. And so we are content with him as our chosen portion and cup. David then says he's content with the sovereign control of God. He says, God, you hold my lot. You hold my lot. What that means is that God holds his future. His destiny is secure. This is really good news, isn't it? That God holds your future, that God knows your future, that God knows your tomorrows, that there's nothing outside of his control, that's really good news. And right now, you should appreciate that. And it struck me this week, as I thought about this point, What this means is that you and I will never live one moment of our life outside of the good hand and care of the Almighty God. There is not one moment of your life that will be outside of His care. And so David says, I am content in life because God holds my lot. And so you and I say on this Sunday, Labor Day weekend of 2021, God, we are content in you because you hold our lot. We don't know what 2021 holds. We don't know what 2022 holds but we know who holds them, and so we are content. Third, David says we, he is content because he knows that where he is, God has placed him. The, lines that, the, 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 the language that David uses here is, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. And the question that I ask myself as I read that is, well, what, how do I define if a place where I am is pleasant? Is it the pleasantness of the activity that I experience there? Is it being fulfilled by what I'm doing there? David says that the lines that he has are pleasant because God has placed him there. And so the definition that David uses to define pleasantry in his life is it is a pleasant place because God has placed me here. A lot of us experience persistent unease about our life dissatisfaction about our life. I would state that a good reason, potentially good reason for your unease is that you are misdefining why you are there. You are in your state of life because God has placed you there and it is pleasant because God has set the boundaries for you while you're there. God has hemmed you in. I'm reflecting on the words of Elizabeth Elliot this week where she says regarding our position in life and our dissatisfaction to where God has put us. Elizabeth Elliot said, the secret is Christ in me, not me in a different set of circumstances. So be content where God has placed you. And then lastly, David is content because he lives in the stability of God's counsel. If you look at verse seven, David says, I bless the Lord who, cu- who gives me counsel. What is the counsel of the Lord? What is the counsel? His counsel is what all counsel is. It's words, it's concepts, it's teachings. His words are given to us, and his words are powerful and living, as we are told in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. And they are living and active. Why? Because they are the words of the living and active God. And you cannot engage the Word of God without the presence and the strength and the activity of God. They are not separated from one another. And so the counsel of God accomplishes much in the life of the one who listens to the counsel of God. Look at the text. Look at the application of what the counsel of God does. The counsel of God addresses the darkness of night. In the darkness of night, the heart is not lost. The heart instructs. In verse 8, the Lord is always before him in his counsel, and so his steps are strengthened. And so David is content in God's provision because God gives counsel. And so the one who shelters in God is the one who actively lives in the strength and the stability of God, which means this, if we are living in the shelter of the one true king, Then we live a whole being celebration to God's goodness all the days that he gives us. It means that we live a whole being celebration to God's goodness all the days that he gives us. This is verse 9 and on. This is where David builds up towards the application at the end of this passage. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure. David emphasizes that because of everything that he just spoke before, that God is king and the source of all good, that he is content in all that God gives him, now his mind, his body, and his spirit can rejoice and be secure. A gladness of heart A rejoicing from his being, and even a body that is is secure. Look at verse 10. It's an interesting verse. David says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your holy one see corruption. David at this point speaks about his death. Right after he said, My body, my flesh will dwell secure. It's kind of a weird connecting point there. We oftentimes don't think of the moment of death as a moment of feeling secure. It seems to be an uncertain event. But David recognizes that as he makes God his king and as he lives in the shelter of this God, that even that experience of death somehow is secure. David is confident in his God in life, and he is confident in his God in his death. But David died. David died, and so he sees this verse, and somehow there's hope in it. So, how is there hope in this verse? Well, for that, we need to take a look at the New Testament. Turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 20, verse 30 and 32. Some of you are familiar with Acts chapter 2, verses 30 through 32. Acts chapter 2 is Peter's sermon at Pentecost. And in this particular verse in the sermon, verses 30 through 32, Peter actually quotes this psalm. He quotes this psalm as an answer to what David was pointing to and his hope was in in Psalm 16. uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 30. Being therefore a prophet, David, knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus did not see corruption. He was not abandoned to Hades. He was raised again by the power of God and defeated the final enemy so that those who are sheltered by God no longer need to live in the fear of that enemy because the power of the grave, the power of sin in the grave has been defeated. This is not a point that you and I should sit silently on. This is a point that we should maybe even say amen to Because this is what changes everything. Jesus Christ, who did not see corruption, was not abandoned. He indeed now gives us life who shelter in him. Listen to the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 2. And you who were dead in your trespasses and your sins, God made alive together with him. And he forgave us of all of our trespasses. He canceled the record of your sin. And he nailed it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and the authorities and he put them to shame by triumphing over them in the grave. He rose again. And therefore those who shelter in God go from life to life no longer needing to fear the moment that so many fear. The victory of Jesus over sin in the grave is now the victory over sin in the grave for us who confess and call Jesus Christ our Lord. And so those who shelter in God Experience strength in the present and certain victory in the future. Why is it that David is pleading for us to be sheltered? Because outside of the shelter of God, there is no victory. And so, people, brothers and sisters, understand that David's plea is my plea for us today. May we be a sheltered people. May we commit to stating that God is our king and he is the source of all good. May we be content in all that he gives us, for he is a good king. And may our days be lived in celebration of the victory that is ours because of the work of Jesus Christ. And no matter how long those days may be or how short those days may be, may we have confidence as we walk and it would be effective for his kingdom. Many of you have heard of the man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Bonhoeffer is known among many of us for those things that he has written, and he's also known to many of us for what he did in World War II in Nazi Germany. Bonhoeffer was one of the founding members of what was called the Confessing Church, the gathering of Christians who believed that the movement of Nazi Germany was not biblically correct And he spoke out against it. He was an active voice against Hitler and Nazi Germany and was an active voice for the gospel. And as such, he was arrested. And his arrest occurred on October 8, 1944, and he was placed in a Gestapo prison until February of 1945 when he was moved from the Gestapo prison to Flossenburg concentration camp. Uh, While he was in prison, Bonhoeffer was known to lead church services in the trucks as they were transported out of the prison to job sites. He led church services in the barracks almost daily. While they waited outside to be counted, he would lead the men through scripture readings. He saw the purpose of his time there. And on April 9th, 1945, Bonhoeffer got up and led the final church service that he would lead for the men of his barracks. As he concluded the service, the Nazi guards came in and removed him from the barracks to take him straight to the gallows. And as Bonhoeffer walked out of the barracks, knowing what was in front of him, he turned to the men in that barracks and he said these words, these are his final words. This is the end for me here. But for me now, the beginnings of life. My prayer for us is that as we live in the shelter of God, we will live in that strength in the present and with a certain victory for the future. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Psalm 16 and the encouragement that is ours. And I pray, Lord, that we would indeed call you king, live with you as our king experience the goodness of you as our king, that we'd be content all the days of the life that you give us, and Lord, that we would celebrate the great work, the great victory that is ours in Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we as your people today who delight in you, we do call out and say, thank you, Lord, for forgiving us of our sins, for giving us a newness of life, and we anticipate the day in which we will see you face to face. And so from the depths of our hearts we cry, Thank you, Jesus, and we look forward to the day when we bow on bended knee before you. And so, Lord, thank you for your faithfulness. We ask now, Lord, that as we partake of your table, we would remember your great love and your great sacrifice on our behalf. In your name we pray, amen.